I do think that there has been momentum to further the cause of estimating and using the social cost of carbon. Welcome to Environmental Insights, a podcast from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stavens, a professor here at the Harvard Kennedy School and director of our Environmental Economics Program. Today, we are very fortunate to have with us Maureen Cropper, who needs little introduction for this podcast, but I will note that she is Distinguished University Professor, University of Maryland, Senior Fellow, Resources for the Future. She's a member and a very active member at that of the National Academy of Sciences and a fellow of the Association of Environmental and Resource Economists. She's a member of the Board of Directors of the Society for Benefit Cost Analysis and a former member of the Board of Resources for the Future. In addition to all of that, she was previously chair of the Environmental Economics Advisory Committee of the U.S. EPA Science Advisory Board, president of the Association of Environmental and Resource Economists, a member of numerous editorial and advisory boards, and the author of some 100 articles. Just going through that, I'm getting exhausted. Welcome, Maureen. Thank you very much, Rob. Um, I'm delighted that you've asked me uh, to be here. I am. Well, we're delighted to have you. So before we talk about some of your research and your current thinking about environmental resource policy, let's go back to how you came to be where you are. Where did you grow up? I was born in Jersey City, New Jersey, and uh, grew up there until I was 10 years old. The family moved to Manhasset, Long Island, where I went to Manhasset High School. Um, the most famous graduate, of course, of Manhasset High School is Jim Brown, the football player. Huh. But I, yes, of the Cleveland Browns. Uh, but I enjoyed that very much. And then I went on to Bryn Mawr College. And, and at Bryn Mawr, you studied economics, is that right? That's correct. And when, when you were studying economics at Bryn Mawr, were you already thinking of environment? Or d- did that come later, just in graduate school? So actually, environment didn't come until my first academic appointment, which was at the University of California, Riverside. Uh, I majored in economics when I was in college. I very much enjoyed my professors at Bryn Mawr, uh, Philip Bell, Mort Barrett, Richard DeBoff. They were great professors. Um, I applied to Cornell Graduate School and went there. But when I was at Cornell, I was doing really more monetary theory. Uh, oh, really? Yes. I was going to guess that when you said it wasn't environment, I was going to guess public economics or I.O., but uh, monetary theory. Yeah, my, my dissertation was bank portfolio selection with stochastic deposit flows. <laughs> wow. Yes. and I Very actually interesting. Got, yeah. <laughs> I got a... Uh, a job offer from the NYU Business School, Mm -hmm. but I wound up going to UC Riverside because it was a joint uh, job market search with me and my uh, partner at the time, Mm -hmm. and luckily, um, 
my partner had actually been acquainted with Ralph Darge. Uh-huh. So we were lucky to get appointments at the University of California, Riverside. At the time, Ralph Darge was there, uh, mm-hmm. Tom Crocker, mm-hmm. Bill Schultze, and mm-hmm. Jim Weiland were graduate students. And this is also when the Journal of Environmental Economics and Management was started. It was started in 1974. I arrived at Riverside in 73, mm-hmm. and that's when I became an environmental economist. And so from Riverside, after beca- where you became an environmental economist, as you said, you then went on to USC, is that correct? Right. So what happened was uh, Ralph and Tom went to the University of Wyoming, um, which was great for the University mm-hmm. of Wyoming, and Bill Schultze and Jim Weiland went on to their careers. Right. The department at that time, once they left, was predominantly a Marxian department. Oh. So uh, Bill Schultze had gone to USC as an assistant professor, and I had the opportunity to go there too, and it was something I just you know, couldn't turn down. And then you stayed there and then eventually went on to the University of Maryland, where you've obviously spent a tremendous amount of time. So my partner did not get tenure at Riverside. Mm -hmm. So we were on the job market together. And luckily for me, I received an offer from Maryland and I have been there, you know, for over 40 years. Yeah, absolutely. As assistant associate and full professor and now university distinguished uh, professor on top of all of that. Now, along the way, at some point, you spent a substantial period of time as lead economist in the research department of the World Bank, if I if I don't have that wrong. If that's correct, I hope it is. Yes. Um, can, you, can you tell us about that? What was, how did that come about and what was the experience like? How, how did I get there? Uh, so, well, I should say, first of all, that um, when I was at Maryland, I also uh, began an affiliation with Resources for the Future. So mm-hmm. that actually came before the World Bank. Uh-huh. I uh, was a Gilbert White Fellow at Resources for the Future, which had a huge effect on my career. But then in 1993, Nancy Birdsall asked if I would join the research department of the World Bank, mm-hmm. which was also a wonderful opportunity. So I took a year off from Maryland, uh, joined as they call it, DEC-RG, the research department. Mm-hmm. And then after that year, I was a part-time person um, at the World Bank, a part-time economist at, at the World Bank, and um, also on an academic appointment at Maryland. So, yeah, that's how it happened. So when you when you, met, you mentioned RFF, um, when you first went there, was Bob Fry the president? Actually, I think this was before... Bob Fry's time, because that that was 1986. We'd have to look it up to see see. exactly who was president then. Um, But Paul Portney was certainly a big figure um, at RFF and also a big figure, you know, in my life. Yeah. Yeah. So my my first exposure of RFF was when I was on the job market for newly minted PhDs, which was in 1988. And when I went about when I went there, I think Bob Fry was president. Paul was, I think, vice president, mm-hmm. and then Ray Cop also. Maybe he was also a vice president. I don't know, but th- that I remember that well. So before we turn to your own uh, scholarship, 
someone that I believe you probably knew very well among all these great foundational figures from environmental economics, Rick Freeman, um, sadly passed away in February. And I wonder if you could share with us your own thoughts about Rick and his contributions. I would be happy to, Rob. Um, I, I was saddened to hear that Rick passed away on February 6th. So I interacted with Rick, as you said, through RFF. Um, I think, you know, if I look back on it, I think Rick's biggest contributions really were his books. I mean, he mm-hmm. certainly wrote important research articles, but his book on you know, in measuring environmental values, I hope I right. have the title correct, uh, has really taught dozens, perhaps hundreds or more um, economists, yes. non-market valuation uh, helped them to launch benefit cost analyses of environmental regulations, which Rick himself actually undertook. I mean, he was doing benefit cost analyses of the Clean Air and Clean Water Acts in the early 1980s. Uh, so I think, I mean, I think his biggest contributions really are in the books that he wrote, you know, primarily measuring environmental values. So I think, I mean, also Rick really did serve on you know, many committees, um, consulted at the World Bank. I mean, he really had a huge impact on non-market valuation. And I think I can, it's fair to say that he really helped to shape that field. That, that's certainly true. So I remember that book in a couple of editions. Did, did, the most recent one, was it co-authored or edited with Kathy Kling, perhaps? Kathy Kling and Joe Harridges ah. actually um, came on board. Mm-hmm. And because I think the original version came out in 1979, you know, it was quite a while ago. And so they helped to, um, you know, update some of the methods. It's it's still a wonderful book. It's something that I refer graduate students to. Absolutely. Yeah, it's on, I have a, you know, bookshelves on the wall, and then there's a credenza behind my desk in my office, which which is where books are that I would go to regularly, and that book is there, uh, and it's been there the entire time since, you know, I did my PhD. Uh, it is a tremendous, tremendous reference. Well, let's get into environmental economics, but before to get to some of your own work, what I'm interested in hearing about are, are, is your commentary on the tremendous changes that have taken place in the scholarly world of environmental economics, certainly since the time you were at Riverside. Are there particular changes or trends in the scholarship of environmental economics that stand out to you? Well, one thing that's happened in environmental economics definitely is the move towards more empirical work, uh, towards adopting what I would say are the quasi-experimental methods that have been championed and and moved forward by economists. Mm -hmm. Uh, If I think about, you know, the balance, let's say, between people doing work that would be considered theory um, versus economists who, and environmental economists who are doing empirical work, I would say that the balance really has shifted. Uh, there has been a lot more attention 
given, especially as, as time has gone by, on the use of big data mm-hmm. uh, to evaluate environmental programs. I think that that has been a trend that really, um, you know, is quite remarkable and is actually uh, a good trend. I mean, it's very appropriate to answer certain questions. Yeah, so it's certainly the case that there have been spillovers of methodology and ways of thinking from environmental economics to other areas of economics. And then there have also been spillovers from other parts of economics, like a lot of use of randomized control trials into environmental economics, particularly in uh, environmental issues in developing countries, I find, where at least a lot of our PhD students, um, they seem to be using RCTs in developing country contexts. Yes, that's definitely that's definitely true. Uh, it's certainly the case also, well, as you know, um, together with Joe Aldi, mm-hmm. Max Alfhammer, uh, Dick Morgenstern, and Art Frost, we wrote a uh, review piece that's going to come out um, in March in the Journal of Economic Literature, mm-hmm. um, which is actually looking at the Clean Air Act after 50 years. We focus in that article really on the use of quasi-experimental methods mm-hmm. to evaluate really the benefits and costs of the Clean Air Act. And I think that, you know, when we when we think about what has happened in terms of ex post studies using uh, newly available data sources, in some cases perhaps RCTs, although I think in the case of the papers that we reviewed, it was really uh, more using you know, state-of-the-art quasi-experimental methods um, as opposed to RCTs. But if you think about, you know, the state that environmental economics was in, let's say even in 1980, uh, it's hard to imagine these studies all have been, you know, having been written, how should we say it, uh, back in 1980. So the fact that there is this large body of literature, I think, does attest to the way that environmental economics has moved with the profession. It's interesting that you mentioned you have this paper, co-authored paper, coming out on uh, reflecting back on the Clean Air Act. My recollection is that some years ago, not very many years ago, Rick Freeman wrote an article that was in, I don't remember if it was the JEL or the JEP, I think it was one of those, but I'm not positive, in which he was reflecting back on the I, think, I don't know if it was the benefits of just the Clean Air Act or it was broader, the benefits of environmental protection, um, looking at the various statutes under which the federal government operates. I know that he did this. As I said, I actually was writing a few paragraphs you know, in his um, honor the other day mm-hmm. and was surprised to see that he had done work on the benefits and costs of the, both the Clean Air and Clean Water Acts back in the 80s. Yeah. Uh, in terms of you know, a more recent evaluation. I'm not sure if I know exactly, you know, the one that you're you're referring to, but I mean, he was actually one of the first people, I think, to suggest that perhaps in the case of the Clean Water Act, that the uh, benefits fell short of the costs. Right. Um, which is something, of course, that's been studied um, a lot since then and by people like Joe Shapiro and uh, David Kaiser. Uh, so I, I'm not sure exactly, you know, the most recent piece you're referring to by Rick, but he certainly was somebody who really encouraged people to do benefit cost analyses. And when you when you think of 
this early work that I think actually was published in 1982, uh, this really precedes the Section 812 studies that were mm -hmm. done by EPA or any sort of really large-scale you know, work. So um, I would say Rick was really in on the ground floor encouraging people to do these studies. Well, if I can dredge up the the reference that I'm thinking of, uh, I will certainly add it to the written materials that go along with these podcasts. But um, right for now, however, before we turn to environmental resource policy, I, I would love it if you could reflect on the entire body of your research and writing. Now, I know this is like asking you to identify <laughs> your favorite child, but what's the one research publication that you are most proud of? That's a tough question. One thing I must say is that I am really proud of having combined forces with epidemiologists, toxicologists, atmospheric chemists, mm -hmm. uh, people in other areas who have done work to document the health effects uh, of air pollution, other forms of pollution as well, but primarily air pollution. And actually, when I look at the Lancet Commission report on pollution and health, which came out, I believe, in 2017, this was an effort that was started by Phil Landrigan, an well-known epidemiologist, uh, Rich Fuller, who founded an NGO, Pure Earth, with the goal, actually, of trying to clean up contaminated sites in developing countries. And what they put together was uh, a Lancet Commission report which leaned heavily on estimates of health effects from the Global Burden of Disease team mm -hmm. at the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation, but they actually saw fit to have economists, and in this case it was Alan Krupnik and myself, quantify the health costs associated with pollution. And, you know, you may not say, well, this is, this is not like original research or something that's going to be published in the JPE or the QJE and so forth. But I think when you think of something having an impact, a lot of what I've done has been to try and measure the benefits of environmental improvements or the damage, environmental damages if you don't do anything um, to clean up the problem. And, you know, you do this, I think, ultimately in terms of policy to have people really take a look at these issues. And... I must say that the work that I've done, I would say probably over the past five or so years, starting with the Lancet Commission report, but also uh, recently working as one of the state-level collaborators on air pollution uh, for India uh, to quantify, again, the health impacts in this case of indoor and outdoor air pollution state by state in India and look at the looking at the economic costs of this, I think that these are things that ultimately do have an impact on policy. And so if you ask me again about something that I think really has been impactful, that's what I would answer. 
So you've taken us now into the world of public policy. And so let's let's stay with that for the moment. Um, can you tell me what is, what's your assessment? We have a new, relatively new U.S. administration. It's been in place, the Biden administration, for not much more than a year after a very different previous administration in terms of environment, the uh, Trump administration. W- what's your assessment of the current U.S. administration's environmental and resource policy? Any aspects of it that you're particularly following? Well, as you know, the the area that I pay the most attention to is the social cost of carbon. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, given um, the ruling, which has in some sense put the brakes on the um, advancement of the social cost of carbon, which, of course, uh, members of the Biden administration have been working on very hard to update, and which was supposed to be released in February or March of 2022. Um, in spite of that ruling, um, I do think that there has been momentum to further the cause of estimating and using the social cost of carbon. After all, you know, on uh, Biden's first day, He actually reinstated the interagency working group, which had been disbanded by President Trump, and really announced that we were going to make progress in in revising the social cost of carbon. So I do think that a lot has been done along those lines, although, as I say, what what we see and how it's used uh, may be affected is likely to be affected. I'm not a lawyer uh, by recent rulings. So you mentioned the social cost of carbon. Just for those uh, who are listening and who are not familiar with it, that's referring to essentially the present discounted value of the future stream of damages in some uh, discounted back to some specific year that of emissions that are released in that given year. Um, apparently, uh, it, it may be increased as a result of the new interagency task force. They may lower the uh, discount rate from 3% to 2% and make some other changes as well and take it from its current value. I believe the interim value is $52 a ton, Maureen. Is that right? Correct. A- and double it. It could come out at $100 a ton or, or considerably more than that, no? Well, it, it certainly could come out at more than that. I mean, if you took the analysis that was done, and essentially this was done before President Trump took office, and you change the discount rate from 3% to 2%, it would raise the $52 to 120-some dollars. Right. And if you were to also make other changes in the bottling of emissions to temperature and other impacts on climate, if you were to change the damage function, you certainly uh, could raise this. Uh, There's a Brookings paper actually by colleagues at RFF. Uh, I was not part of them, so I'm just citing their results, which I think are important, um, which actually by updating certain components of the analysis came up with a value that was, I believe something like $179 mm-hmm. per ton using basing everything on a or tying everything to a, a current discount rate of about 2%. So certainly I think there are it's very likely that a revised value 
so could certainly you know, approach $200. It would be something that would be much larger than 50 So speaking of the social cost of carbon, uh, which obviously is associated with global climate change, um, can, can you tell me are, uh, where are you in the spectrum of optimism to pessimism about progress on climate change policy, uh, both in the United States and for that matter around the world? Well, Rob, I'm not sure I'm the right person to ask about what's happening with international climate policy. Um, well, then focus on U.S. So, That'll be, that's well, more than enough. With regard to the U.S. in terms of keeping up with, um, I guess, the implications of current uh, policies, from a great distance, I'm not very optimistic. I think the person really to ask these questions of would be actually somebody like your colleague, Joe Aldi. Uh, so, you know, as I say, I've focused on the social cost of carbon. I've also focused a lot on Indian um, policies, as you know, over the last few years. Uh, and I, well, I don't want to make too many comments there, but uh, I guess I'm not particularly optimistic about the rate at which greenhouse gas emissions are being reduced. No, that's reasonable. So uh, finally, I want to ask for your personal reaction, and it doesn't require any, you know, deep knowledge. Uh, and that is that something that we've seen that's really changed uh, are these youth movements of climate activism. They were striking for the first time in the U.S. and Europe in 2019, a bit of a hiatus during the uh, pandemic, and then came to the fore again, uh, particularly in Glasgow at COP26. What's your personal reaction? You know, it can be as an economist or as a mother, as an individual, in any way you like. What's your reaction to these youth movements of climate activism that we see today? Well, I think it's wonderful to see people full stop, and but especially young people, be interested in doing something and getting behind this. And one hopes that as, as they mature and as the next generation um, grows up, that they will indeed have different attitudes. I do, you know, you asked, you know, as a, as a mother, um, so I have... Uh, four children and a stepchild and three grandchildren. And I, I actually do see the attitudes that they have and which really are, are very encouraging to me in terms of, you know, what's happening in the current country as a whole. I'm really not in the position, I guess, to comment on that, except that it does seem like a very good indicator perhaps or, or bellwether one hopes of things to come. And the uncertainty you express there, I assume, is associated with the question of whether this is an age effect or a cohort effect. As this group of young people become older and move into positions of power, will they become more conservative and less focused on this issue, or will they take forward the strong activism? And instead of being out in the streets outside of the UNFCCC negotiations, they'll be inside as the negotiators. Do you have any thoughts on uh, the age versus cohort <laughs> phenomena? What do you expect there? Well, I certainly hope that it is a cohort phenomenon and not just an age phenomenon. Mm -hmm. But I, as I say, this is a little bit outside of my 
um, my sphere of knowledge. So all I can say is I really hope that these young people going forward will continue to have the attitudes that they do now. Well, on that, that's an optimistic note of hope on which to end. So thank you, Maureen, for having taken time to join us today. Thank you very much for inviting me. Our guest today has been Maureen Cropper, Distinguished University Professor of Economics at the University of Maryland. Please join us again for the next episode of Environmental Insights, Conversations on Policy and Practice from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stavens. Thanks for listening. Environmental Insights is a production from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. For more information on our research, events, and programming, visit our website, www.heap.hks.harvard.edu.